house music you feel from the inside. It's time for Soul Essence with Martin Gale. Now today's guest on the show almost needs no introduction as she's been part of house music culture for over 30 years and frankly most of our lives for the best part of 25. I'm beyond delighted to welcome the one and only Ultranate. Yay! <laughs> Hi Martin, welcome. how are you? I'm well, thank you. I was touched and humbled watching the replay of your set at the weekend, which of course you did in tribute to the, the sort of friends we lost along the way in the COVID crisis. First things first, how are you keeping in this worrying time? I'm doing I'm doing a lot better than some. And so, you know, I, I'm keeping it in perspective and being grateful for friends and family that are still here, that are healthy, that are thriving, you know, just trying to take care of my folks and um, help my industry where and when I can, continue moving with business and fortifying my soul with music and um, other things that make me happy and and just you know just trying to stay on the right side of all of this in being a, you know another positive voice out there in the mist and of course on a happier note we're also in pride season around the world and thanks to free you're a particularly special icon for the lgbtq community how does that make you feel that's wonderful it's wonderful i mean i feel like i've always been part of the lgbtqia mm. community anyway um with my career because they really were that community was the foundation of fans and supporters and peers and collaborators that I was surrounded by from the beginning of my my journey in music on so many levels in so many areas and so I've always had this really great relationship with the community and they really taught me a lot of things and just being in the underground club scene in club culture you learn a lot of things because that's where you know house music was born out of yeah quite out of gay culture although you became a household name here in the UK in the in the late 90s those of us sort of house music watchers remember mm-hmm. it's over now on your early work with the basement boys can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about your experience getting into the house scene at that time <laughs> for me it was really accidental because I was in I had just finished high school and I had just started at university literally just started at university and I, I felt like I was kind of thrown into this really crazy pool and didn't um, have my footing really of what I was what I was doing but I did know that I wanted to continue in in the medical field which had been my um, area of concentration through my high school uh, curriculum as I went to a college prep school so I was already on that path. Um, And then in that same year, I discovered the underground dance music culture and going to a club here in Baltimore where I'm from called Odell's. And that was kind of that's like really a legendary, iconic club here in Baltimore has a long legacy. Um, And it was it was likened after the Paradise Garage in New York. Um, So great sound, great design of the club, really, you know, amazing people and just like this awesome, immersive experience. And so having that as to counterbalance the university situation, I kind of gravitated more towards the music and the energy of underground club culture at that moment. And being in that environment, I met the Basement Boys um, just by happenstance, and they were looking for vocalists to develop their their new budding production company. Um, They asked me to come in and sing and audition for them because they knew I kind of sang in my church choir a little bit, but I wasn't really a singer and that wasn't my path. And I definitely had never written a song. But I was, you know, in the spirit of adventure as a teenager, you're like, okay, sure, I'll try it, you know? So I, did, that I really just organically liked that, hanging out with the boys at the studio. Other people were there, people were auditioning. I sang a song for them, like I did Angela Wimbush's Angel. They loved it. And 
they ended up working with me. So we, you know, just spent time in the studio coming up with ideas for songs. And the first song that I wrote in my uh, attempt to write a song was It's Over Now. Ah. And so we had these lyrics as we kind of wrote it at the kitchen, in the, in the, in the kitchen on the, on the counter. But it was only lyrics. There was no melody. There was no track. And so that night, the boys were like, well, we need to, you know, we need to, like, really have something to show for our session tonight. So, you know, we got this. And at the time, this was in the age of dats, God knows. So they, like, grabbed a dat out of the closet, just this random track that I had never heard before that they had worked on. It was a bare bones, minimum, minimal, really, track. And they were like, you know, can you just, um, you know, see what you can come up with to this track with, with the lyrics that we all just wrote. So it's like, OK, I'll give, you know, give it a whirl. And so I went in the booth and just kind of like bounced off the top of my head in the rhythm pocket of the track. That was uh, next thing I know is in, you know, in Warner at Warner Brothers with a record deal and, and on top of the pops in the UK. And in that period, before you signed to Strictly and, and when you were kind of with a major Warner Brothers it, it seemed like you were kind of almost regrouping in that period I know you sort of famously got broad range of influences musically was there ever mm-hmm. like a kind of sliding doors moment where you ever thought about doing something different outside of the house scene nope <laughs> you were always not really. not really I mean by the time I had done the Blue Notes from the Basement album mm. and then One Woman's Insanity and the, the, during the period of doing Blue Notes from the Basement, again, that was, you know, so organic. I was like, whatever I was writing, you know, it was going on the album. We were just coming up with these things. But I was really kind of an observer of things of my own life at that moment because it was so surreal to be on a major record label from someone who had never sang before. I had never sang before. I had never written songs before. So this was all really crazy to me but I didn't and I didn't know what I was doing but I was just kind of just trusting my talent and and trusting that this opportunity and this experience had happened for a reason and just following through with it by the time it was time to do One Woman's Insanity the second album from Warner my my contract has shifted from the UK company to the US company and now I was in deeper waters because I was with a company that didn't really know and understand club music and dance music in the way that the UK and Europe did um so it was a, it was a much tougher fight to meet the needs of what the U.S. company needed. They really needed a commercial record through and through. Mm. Um, they didn't want those blended lines, those in-between places. They wanted to know who the demographic was clearly, and they wanted it to be radio. Radio here it was a different thing from radio in the U.K. So, you know, we tried to meet that demand of making the, the sound, you know, more commercially viable while still maintaining our underground and club roots and being true to our underground house music community. And I think we did that on One Woman's Insanity as best you could, but I don't think we were in a situation where we were with a label at that point that really understood or knew who or how to market a hybrid like that. And so that relationship ended. So the only period where I had had to really think about whether I wanted to continue was after my deal with Warner ended in 94. By that time, I felt like, well, I've, I've spent the last six, seven years of my life 100% in this, and I've, I've accomplished something really amazing that I never for, you know, foresaw. Why would I abandon it at this moment in my life? And so that I was at that crossroad, and I made the decision to go forward. And that's when I started writing for what would be my next album. And I didn't have a, a deal in place between 94 and 97 once Free came out. At that time, I didn't, I wasn't signed to any labels and I didn't want to sign to any labels because it needed to be the right label mm. 
after coming from a major like Warner and having, you know, product managers and budgets and radio pluggers and, and, you know, like the whole shebang that actually knows how to build a record and get it to the masses. You know, the machine was there. So I needed to move into a situation where there was still a machine, but it knew how to work the underground machine to get it to a commercial level. And the only label that fit that bill was Strictly Rhythm. And Gladys Pizarro really wanted me to, to work with them. So when she came to me, like, just do one record with us, just do one 12-inch. We were like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And so we signed for this one 12-inch and we wrote free. But we already knew that we were going to put out an album and it was going to be a continuance. So when okay. pre blew up and the album, and then it was like, oh, we need to do an album. The album was already in place because I had already been on that path even before I wrote free. I had written 60% of Situation Critical. So that was my very brief moment of being kind of at the crossroads of thinking about doing something else. And then, of course, it all, as we know, kind of blew up big for you. How did you manage to keep your feet on the ground at that point? You know, it really was because of the way that my career progressed in that I started with a team of people who got me, you know, my, from my management to my producers to my A&R people. And that's a blessing because a lot of artists, at, when they're young like that, and they're teenagers and they're just stumbling into this career field and they're immersed in a situation where suddenly you're a product, that already is a, is a mind, screws your mind up right there and understanding that you're, you are a product and this is your, but this is your art also. And how do you, how do you bring the two together? Um, to meet the demand of all these people because all these people are looking at you to be great. Now I've got to be great, like on demand. <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? So having the experience of having, a, you know, a team of people around me who understood the music that I was doing, um, they supported it. People didn't try to change me into something else. They didn't try to like put this whole other thing on me and just let me do what I was doing and the genre of music that I was doing and that I came into the house music scene when it had first come out mm. of Chicago and New York and it was still budding and starting to build in a commercial way. And I was part of those first acts that defined house music on a commercial level of having a major label deal, of having their picture on buses running around the city, you know, in London yeah. and, and, and you know, opening up magazines and having full art, you know, full page art in, in major magazines and things like that. Like that did not happen before that moment for this kind of music because it was brand new. So I was at a place where people couldn't really dictate to me what it should be because I was creating the template. So having that moment to do it in a way where I was fully supported, I wasn't under pressure to be anything but what I was, gave me the foundation. So when I did years later blow up even further to a level where now globally people knew what I was doing and there was there was an incredible level of demand and stress and all of these things going on in the minutia. I was able to handle it better because I was older at that point and I had years of experience under my belt and I already knew who I was. And I knew that this moment in this record doesn't define me, but it is an accomplishment in that everything that I did before this moment is validated. So you've got an incredible sense of belief. I mean, I can hear, just listening to you talk, about that uh, I would say that probably the, the one thing that underpins it is you were absolutely clear what it was you wanted to do what it was you wanted to say you wanted to make sure it was right and then actually when that moment came along you were absolutely prepared 
and committed to it. I mean, that's that's incredible yeah. advice to anybody, you know, anybody coming onto the scene now who, who looks at what you did. You really have to be ready because people don't see the behind the scenes that happens, all the work that it takes to just, you know, make two minutes on stage or, or, or in an, a live interview or whatever thing in the public eye in order to make that moment look and feel great and authentic. There's so many things happening behind the scenes and you really have to be able to deal with that stress. You need to know what it takes to to make that work. And you also know what you need to know where your limitations are. So you really do need a team around you that looks out for you in the right way, again, because you can't do it all by yourself. But you also need to be very clear who you are, what your boundaries are. And you kind of have to have, I mean, for me personally, I've always had a spirit of adventure Mm. and learning and I and I don't take myself too seriously. So if I make a mistake, you can't be afraid to make a mistake. It takes a lot of courage to be to put yourself in the front because the bigger you are, the bigger the easier the target. So it takes a lot of courage to handle all of these things and to and to not lose yourself to it. So I actually have um, a personal reason to thank you, actually, um, for your songwriting since Founder Cure helped me through uh, a difficult time once. You clearly have a gift for finding hope and connecting people to it. Where does that come from? Whenever I'm doubting myself, and, and obviously, you know, I'm human, I doubt everything because, you know, everything is on full display. Whatever I write suddenly becomes, you know, public to the people and it's there to be nitpicked apart. But I always go back to the saying of trust your art because I feel like God speaks through you and and your talent. Everyone has a talent, whatever that is. And there's a state that you go into that's where you flow. And if you just let your talent give or give yourself over to it, you know, when I'm songwriting, I could be held back by, well, this isn't what people are talking about in music right now, you know, or maybe this is this lyric is too complicated. You know, people aren't going to understand what I'm talking about here or this is too simplified. I need to find a better way to say this that, you know, that that really strikes a chord deeper. I I approach songwriting like that. Like when I'm, you know, when I'm just when it's just me and my writing pad, how do I say this in a way that is going to be prolific in a way that is going to speak to people at its very base. Like when you strip away, you know, all of the drums and the backbeat and the, and the, you know, the pea soup and all of that, you know, all of the parts of the music production. And it's just the song. It's just the lyrics and the story, the melody. What is the emotion that a person is going to feel hearing this? And, and Found a Cure specifically, I would say was one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult song in my career to date, to write, because I wrote it under so much duress and it was at the height of Free and so many people were so in love with Free and attached to it and it was so strong still in the marketplace that anything, I felt like anything that I put out behind it was not going to get its proper due because it needs to have its own personality. And I went against my label at the time You know, they wanted me to go with another song that I felt was very um, just kind of like it was a cool song, but I didn't feel like it was impactful enough to come behind free. But it was safe. It was super safe. Mm. And I felt like safe was not the move. So I needed to do something that pushed a little bit harder at that moment. And so I I finally came up with Found a Cure. And that positivity that you got into your songs, you're now driving from behind the decks as well so i've been watching your live streams and obviously see you on instagram and social media and the gigs that you're doing how does sort of being this side of the decks compare with you know being the writer being the vocalist making the records 
you know, for me, I don't know. It's it's all it's all in the suit. It's all part of the thing. It's just part of my art thing and expression of music in in just in a different way. I mean, I, I really love being behind the decks. I love playing songs for people. You know, playing things that I love to dance to. And, and that's how I always approach it when I DJ. It's like I don't know what this crowd is might be into. You know, it, sometimes it's difficult when you get booked for gigs in different places. Like, are they into harder stuff? Are they into more tech? Like, do they hate vocals here? Like, yeah, I don't, you don't know. You don't know what you're stepping into. Yeah. Sometimes. As much as we try to, you know, inquire about me coming to DJ and make sure that they are clear what I play. Mm. And so, you know, don't try to book me and then ask me to play a completely different thing of what I generally play. In some instances, I may play harder if I'm at a harder event, in like electronic event or whatever. But in their records that I love, they're in that. And this gives me the moment to be able to play those harder records. Totally get that. But... I think when you're DJing, you you get that opportunity to once again create that relationship with the crowd. I don't necessarily like to play at the crowd. I like to play mm. with them, and it's a it's kind of a give and take. But I play songs that I feel speak to people. So it may be vocal heavy in some instances. There's some really great tracky stuff that I love to play as well. You know, I can definitely go into some other things, some really late night tough guys. You know, yeah things or whatever but it just depends it's like it's 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 all music and it's, it's whatever i appreciate if it's something that i appreciate and i think it's going to move the dance floor then i'm up for it and i'm and i'm going to play it so looking forward then what can we expect to see next from you assuming that we can travel again i'm assuming you're going to be on the road you know i i have to deal with what's happening here and now and the things that i can control what i can control is the music that i'm writing for my next album, which will be number 10, and I can't even believe that, that I'm working on my 10th album. Wow. And feeling really good about what I'm writing. I mean, if the pandemic hasn't done anything else, it slowed me down long enough for me to have to be home in order to concentrate on my writing. And so I've done a ton of writing over the last couple months. And then I can cherry pick out of the out of everything that I've written what makes sense for the next album that I want to put together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and get that work out. I've got my apparel shop set up. Um, so now people are buying, you know, my, my t-shirts and clothing stuff on my, on the website. So that's been great because that's been a long-term goal. I just hadn't taken, you know, the time to like really get it going. And then now doing the live stream aspect, I can play, you know, when I, when I want to. And I hadn't done it because, you know, as, as you know, I had, like I said, in my live stream, when I started with those friends, I mean, just it, it was mm. when the pandemic first went down, it was just like every week somebody was passing that I knew. And I was really just kind of frozen with grief for a while. And it yeah. just didn't seem like something that I could do. I just didn't have the energy to put into that when it felt like the sky was falling in. So it took me a while, but I got to a point where I felt like, okay, girl, you got to pull yourself out of this. You got to pull yourself out of this because there are people that are waiting and hoping that you'll go play. And at first I was like, well, every DJ is playing live right now online. But people were like, no, we need to hear you. (laughs) Like, we need to hear what we need to hear you. So I was like, oh, oh, okay, oh, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. So I was like, okay, girl, you gotta pull yourself together. And I would just think of my friends who have passed, and I call them my forever angels. So when I'm stuck, I think about well, Nisham would he would say, go, come on, girl, you know, Orlando or Gus, they would be, girl, come on, you gotta do it. And so I use them as my guides and my strength to get over that hump to then go forward to finally do that live stream wow that's really inspiring really inspiring and uh very very humbling um i'm gonna play joey negro's mix of desire next ah yes 
one of my faves. It's kind of a custom on the show that I get the guests to introduce it for me. Would you mind? Absolutely. Okay, so here we go. In closing, we're going to listen to one of my favorite songs. Love it, love it, love it from the Stranger Than Fiction album. This is Desire, Joey Negro, Remix. Love it. Love it. 